I'm going to start off by this. I'm going to ask you a question that was asked me recently. A man looked at me and he said, do you remember Doogie Howser? <laughs> do you remember? And I was like, it took me for a second. I'm like, Doogie Howser, who, did I know him? Um, name sounds familiar. And remember, there was the TV show. And in the TV show with, um, who was it? Neil Patrick Harris, who went on to be a successful adult actor, which is unusual, but he was the actor, if you go back and look at the trivia of it. Um, and what was it about, though? About what? A boy that becomes a doctor, right? A child protege. Okay? And, and he said, the reason he asked me this question is he said, my dad was a Doogie Howser. And I said, what do you mean? He says, when he graduated with his PhD, I think it was from Auburn University, when he was 19. And, and people say, how can that happen? And sometimes they say that didn't happen, right? People that are jealous or people just can't wrap their heads around it. And they come up with these proposals. This is what really happened. And they kind of come up with these preposterous proposals. And they'll say, you know, he probably cheated all the time. His, his parents did the work for him. So he had a baby face, but he was much older than he looked. Or maybe he was really a robot, right? You know, he wasn't a real person. And it's not just in academics, right? We do that whenever something like that happens. Like when we were in San Diego, we had a charity event, and um, Adrian um, Gonzalez came. And he was then playing for the San Diego Padres, first baseman. He's now with Los Angeles Dodgers. And he was a really nice guy. Everybody liked him. And he was an outstanding player, so we knew what the Padres would do. They traded in the next year. Really good. We could, very predictable. And he went to Boston Red Sox. And he was a guy who hit maybe 20 home runs a season, but he had a close to 30 home runs first half of the season. So he has a live interview, and what do they say? What kind of supplements are you using? You, there's no way you could possibly do this on your own, right? And I think he said, the supplement I use is a super taco that I have every afternoon for lunch. <laughs> but, you know, people will pick on those kinds of things. And that's really the topic that we have with Jesus today, is they're saying, where do your miracles come from? We can't believe this. We can't wrap our heads around this. We don't want to believe it. There's some jealousy going on. And we don't really like your message so much. Uh, or we have some questions about it. And so now we're questioning, where does your power come from? Where do miracles come from? And that will launch us into our next series that we're starting today called Line in the Sand. Has Jesus been around long enough now? It's been maybe a year and a half or so. He's nearing the end of his ministry, and he's basically saying, uh, you guys have had enough information. What's your choice going to be? Are you going to follow me or not? And this, really, this question begins to turn us in another direction in his ministry. So he begins to draw this line in the sand. And we're going to look at it today. We're going to look at where do miracles come from, and we're going to find that in Luke chapter 11, verses uh, 14 through 23. But before we go there, let's understand that there's other passages in the scriptures that talk about this same event or parts of it. And we find that in Mark 12. You can jump around a little bit in Mark 12. I'm sorry, in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, and then Mark 3, verses 23 through 27. And they tell the same account. So if you look at those passages and you compare them, you can draw some additional insights, which we'll occasionally do. But let's jump into it. Where did uh, miracles come from? Well, first of all, miracles turn Satan against himself. We're going to have a problem there from the very beginning. But let's jump into it, starting in verse 14, and we'll go through verse 19. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, 
the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from uh, heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. Okay. So we start off, and this guy is mute. He can't speak. And Matthew says he actually um, he, he couldn't see either. He's also blind. And Jesus drives his demon out of him, and all of a sudden he can speak, and he can see. And so the people are excited. They are amazed. They marvel at this. They think this is wonderful. Um, and Matthew says, to their credit, some of them are saying, hmm, I wonder if he's doing this by the Son of God. Maybe he is the Son of God. Well, that is recognition that Jesus is the Messiah, Christ who's come to save them, because the Messiah or, or the Christ is supposed to be a descendant of King David. So they're saying, maybe this is him. So they're on target. But the other people, they're amazed, but they're skeptical. This couldn't be. There's got to be another explanation. And Matthew and Mark point out that the Pharisees are the ones that are driving this. They're the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and we've seen earlier that they're disagreeing with Jesus, and all of a sudden this thing's about ready to go, come to a head. And Jesus will direct them, in fact, will be very direct with them in just a few passages. And so they're kind of feeding the crowd, and they're saying, you know what, he isn't doing this by his own power. He's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. Well, who in the world is Beelzebub? Well, he is the prince of demons. Who's the prince of demons? Satan, right? So Beelzebub is actually a nickname for Satan. We don't like to say Satan or the devil too much, so they had a nickname for him. And it goes back to the Old Testament. It's kind of interesting because in the Old Testament, there was a god named Baal. He was, a, he was a, all, you know, somebody that they would worship. He was an idol. And they would worship Baal. And Baal was so closely identified with Satan that a lot of times people would use the name interchangeably. And Beelzebub comes from Baal. And it probably was a very uplifting, um, positive statement about Baal. But what they did is they used a parody. A parody is you know, when you change the, some of the letters around and things and you create another word that sounds the same but it's different. And they made a joke out of it, sort of. They mocked it. So it probably originally meant Baal is prince, or Baal the exalted, or Baal of the temple, you know, the master of the house. And they turn around on this thing, and they changed it so it means the Lord of the flies, which would be a good name for a novel. But that's what it means. So if you read the Lord of the Flies, that's where it comes from. It's really a name for Satan. It's a nickname that just sort of puts him down and puts him in his proverbial place. Okay? So that's what they're calling Satan here. But they're saying about him is that Jesus is getting his power from him. And what quickly this passage boils down to is a question of authority. Who has spiritual authority? Is spiritual authority found in God or is it found in Satan? Is it found in A 
Or is it found in B? You know how teachers do that sometimes? It's an obvious answer. You know where I'm going with this one, okay? But we want to see how we get there. Because even today, we have problems with this. I would say that there are people in this room who may say they don't believe in these spiritual forces of darkness and so forth, and yet I would say they probably do more than they think they do. If you watch, see, see some of the television shows people watch and the movies they watch and so forth, it doesn't change a whole lot. Um, we're really fascinated, fixated, obsessed with the occult and with darkness and with evil and all that, and we're just playing right into it. Where does it come from? Why are people thinking about it all the time? Why are they writing about it? Because it ties right in to what the Bible says. But here's the deal. Usually we say, well, there's evil and there's good. There's the darkness and the light. And we don't know for sure who's going to win, but we want to be on the right side because we're assuming that the right side, the good guys are going to win in the end. And our theology is a little bit like Star Wars. It's going to be a little different than that, as we'll see today in the Bible. There's a lot more hope than just who's going to win, the good or, or the evil here. But let's, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Let's start by saying this. Let's identify who Satan is. The Bible tells us he's the prince of demons. It doesn't tell us a lot about his background, his origins, and so forth, but that he is a fallen angel, and fallen angels are called demons, and he is the head of the fallen angels, and there are quite a few demons in the world. He has supernatural powers, and he's a bad guy. He wants to harm us. Um, in fact, Fernando Ortega in his song, Our Great God, says that Satan is cold-blooded, and he points out that he delights in our harm. He's happy when we're unhappy. That's what he's all about. And he has supernatural powers to some degree, and he's going to try to make life miserable for us. Now, there's a couple ways that he does this. And the Bible talks about it. We have, theologically, we have two terms that we typically use. One is oppression, and the other one is possession. To oppress a person is to, to burden them, to be heavy on them, to cause them struggles. And Mitch talked about this just a, uh, a couple weeks ago, did a good job describing demonism and saying that uh, Satan can get a foothold in our lives. And he can get us to think about things. Whenever we do things wrong, it's usually because something floated into our minds that we shouldn't have been thinking about or something came across our path that it was an area that tempted us. And he'll do that all the time to see how much control he can get of our lives. And if we let him have enough control, then he possesses us and he begins to control a person's life. All right? You see the difference between the two? He can do some pretty nasty things. For example, in the Bible, here are some examples. It says that, um, it, it says that um, he, uh, it, it, he can cause mental disorder. John chapter 10, verse 20. He can cause violent action. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 29. He can cause bodily disease. Luke chapter 13, verses 11 and 16. Or rebellion against God. Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. And note here that it doesn't say that the man was mute. It says that the demon was mute at the beginning. And so he can cause harmful things in our life. Now, we're talking here, you know, as, as we look at this stuff, we say, wow, you know, th those aren't good things. And those are things to be frightened of. But let's understand this. In the world at that time, they didn't understand a lot of what we understand in modern science. And we know now that some people have heart disease and some people have mental illness. You know, some of those things are inherited, and they're not the cause of demons. 
But what we need to understand is that he can cause what, we might, what might look like mental illness, especially when it's very extreme. He's often behind that. And he can cause people to do some very strange things. And even if somebody has a problem in an area, he can make it worse. So he can prey upon the person when he gets footholds in their lives. Does that happen today? Not very often. Like Mitch said, how many of you are demon-possessed? And, you know, nobody raised their hands, so that was good. Um, that was a relief. That's, that's unlikely. Okay, here, but could it still happen? Yeah, I, I think um, of an example recently, a few weeks ago. Remember the guy who went into the church in South Carolina, and he, he prayed with them, and then he shot all those people? That was a heinous racial act, and in and of itself it would have been bad. But then on top of that, he did it in a church, and he went after these people that knew God. So there's a spiritual element involved in it too. I would say when those kinds of things happen and they get off the wall like that, what, what's going on there? I don't know. I'm not going to say for sure. I know that we as a country could do a lot better in caring for the mentally ill in our country. But sometimes I think things go above and beyond. And it's a little scary. And I'm not, I'm not immune to saying that that could have been demonism in that situation. And we have those things happening more and more, and we keep saying, no, it couldn't be, have anything to do spiritually with anything. But if we look at what the Bible says, it has a lot to do with what's going on spiritually. I find that in the experiences that I have had that, you know, experiences that I've had that would probably be demonic-type experiences, often drugs and alcohol play a role in it. Why would that be? Because Satan preys on your mind, and he wants to tempt you to do things. And you cannot resist him when your mind becomes weak and lethargic and you can't think. So when you're on drugs and alcohol, you, know, you could have a blackout, and you wake up, and everybody tells you all these crazy things you did. Who was doing that? And that's why this stuff gets pretty scary, and I want to emphasize that it's, it's very real stuff that's going on out there, and, and we need to be aware of it. Now, what happens, though, is he, he lays this, the, you know, he tells us all this stuff that's going on. It's pretty bad. Um, Satan is a bad guy, and he also talks about this sign, and these guys are saying, we want to see another sign. We want to see a bigger sign than exorcisms. And we're kind of grouping all, he's really talking about exorcisms, which is a miracle, but we're grouping all miracles together. And we'll talk more about that next week, but they're basically saying we want to see more. We, we've, after all that Jesus has done, they're still, not, they're still not believing him. And so that's why Jesus is drawing this line in the sand, as we see. But he's starting to address this exorcism question, if you will, first. So he goes on, and by the way, this is almost humorous. They say, they say show us a sign. We don't believe you. And the first thing Jesus does is he reads their thoughts and tells them what they're thinking. So isn't it funny how sometimes you just get so fixated on something that you don't even listen when the facts are all right before you? So Jesus performs a sign right away. They still don't get it. But he goes on to say, essentially, that a house or a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. That was possibly a popular say, statement during that time. And it was popularized again in our country by who? Who knows their history? Come on, come on. This isn't a chance. Uh, Danielle? Who was it? Lincoln. Lincoln. She got a little shy there, you know, but she, she pulled it out. Yeah, Lincoln. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said that in his first famous speech, remember? 
He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This nation cannot exist half free and half slave. It can't endure. It's going to end up in a civil war. And he was prophetically true. It became a civil war. The nation split apart. But you know what's unique about our civil war? We came back together again. That doesn't usually happen. Israel had a civil war, and they didn't come back together again. And he was probably alluding to that. And so what they understand is no king in his right mind would attack himself. And if Satan wants to harm us, and he's putting people in people's lives to harm them, that's his main job. That's what he does for a living. And all of a sudden, he's saying, no, I'm going to fight against myself. I'm going to, I'm going to take myself, my, my, my minions out of people, and I'm not going to do that anymore. It just it doesn't make any logical sense. And so he points it out as it is. He says, this is, this is totally illogical. And then he goes a step further and he says, if you're saying that I cast out demons by uh, the devil, then who do your people cast them out by? When other people do miracles, who empowers them? Is it questionable who people are empowered by? Could they be empowered by the devil too? He says, you're going to turn your own people against you and you're going to split them up. And he shows, again, how absolutely illogical this is. It's illogical on another term, too, because one of the things I looked up is what, what a miracle is. And what I found, I looked up the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology from a spiritual perspective, what a miracle is. And a miracle is an event that runs counter to the observed processes of nature. You know, as much as we can understand nature, it's something that's opposite of nature. So, like, if all of a sudden I started to levitate, and we had some good scientists here, and they came, and they rolled under me, and they measured it and everything, and they checked it out. I said, you know, this is, science isn't against his, um, you know, Christianity. They work together, and the scientist is able to say, this explains this, this explains this, and they'd say, there's no explanation for this. Therefore, this has got to be some kind of a miracle. But there's another aspect to miracle, and this is the fact that a miracle, every example we have is a clear objective is to make God known and draw people to himself. So by that alone, we know that Satan doesn't do miracles because Satan doesn't want people to be drawn to God and to know him. Miracles are positive. Miracles are constructive. Miracles are protective. Miracles are victorious. They're the exact opposite of Satan. So he's ruled out on all counts. And so the answer points back to Jesus and to God. And that's where miracles come from. So we look at the next point, which is that miracles are from God. Verses 20 through 22. And he says this. He says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. So Jesus says, um, God, and we learned last week, Jesus, of course, is God, so, but together, because he is God, he's co-equal with God, he exists as God the man on earth, but he's also still God the Father in heaven, and he comes together, and with supernatural strength, he can force the uh, devil out. And how does he get rid of demons? He does it with his finger. I think he can do it with his little finger. And the fact that he does it is evidence that God's kingdom is here on earth, and so that we here on earth can now be in a relationship with God and know that we'll live with him forever in heaven. So that's the good news. And so Jesus gives a parable. He tells a story to reinforce what he's saying. And let's see if you guys can figure this one out. Remember, the context of the story is that uh, these people are saying, these religious leaders are saying that the devil is the one, the forces of darkness, so to speak, 
is the one that is, you know, force is, is, control, is in control here and is enabling Jesus to do these works and take demons out of people. Got it? So who would the strong man be? Who's the strong man, do you think? Who is the strong man that's guarding his house and other houses that he owns, guarding his real estate? Want to take a stab at it? Nobody? Huh? No, not, not the Holy Spirit. Who is it that has, that, that has real estate here? He has property? And it's the devil, right? The devil's the strong man. The devil is a strong man, and his real estate is what? Is who? People, right? People. That's his property. He takes control of them, and he possesses them, and he comes into them. He's the strong man, and he's guarded himself, and now he's taking control of a person. Who's the stronger man? Who would the stronger man be? Jesus or God. He comes in, and he proverbially kicks his tail. You talk about turning the other cheek. There are times, there are seasons for everything, says Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Jesus comes in, and he beats him to a pulp, and he throws him out. He says, you get out of this person, he's mine. And he throws him out. And if that person really follows Jesus at this point, they can come into a relationship with him and experience all the benefits. But that's up to them. But he, will, he, he forces the devil out. So that's what we're talking about here. Now, the spoils, in other words, he gets all these things from Satan and he then gives them to other people. Who does he share them with? Who would he share them with? He gives them to to us. And what are the spoils or what are the things that he gets from Satan that he gives to us? Uh, Daryl Bach, the noted theologian, says what he gets from him is he gets salvation, the benefits of salvation. So a person is in control by Satan and he's not in a relationship with God, but now Satan is kicked out of him and he now has the opportunity to have the things that Satan is trying to hold back from him. Forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit and eternal life in heaven with Jesus. Pretty cool. So he's basically saying that he's already beaten Satan and everything's under his control. And you just have to respond to him. So those are pretty powerful thoughts. Look at it this way. In John 1, it says that Jesus created everything in the beginning with God. So who did Jesus create? He created Satan. And Satan fell away. Jesus is already over Satan. He has already defeated him. Read the end of the book. If you want to read the end of the novel, read the end of the Bible. You know, when you get to the end of Revelation, the devil will go to hell. And that's why he's so angry and fighting out against us. It's not a story of who's going to win, good or evil. Good has already won. And God is just tolerating him at this point to see more of us, give more of us an opportunity to be saved and live with him forever in heaven and for us to be able to do valiant deeds for him until that time comes. And he knows when it's going to be but he's already won. And so we're already in control. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's good news. Now, the next thing is how we're supposed to respond to it. And it gets a little bit more dicey. Miracles should draw us to Jesus. We've seen that already. But listen to how Jesus puts it. Jesus says in verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying he's drawn that line in the sand. And he's saying, you know, enough. You guys, I have done so many miracles to prove myself to you. 
and you're still, after all this time, and we could say he's done that in our lifetime too, given us so much incredible information that we have, even more than they have as we look back on all the information he's given us. You guys have seen miracles, you've seen lives transformed and everything else. You need to make up your mind. Quit trying to tell me that I'm doing miracles by the devil. You make up your mind. Either you're for me or you're against me. If you're, if you're not for me, then you're against me. There is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. Now think about this. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in a leadership team and you have to make a decision in business world, at work, or maybe even in church planning meeting or something, or maybe with the PTA or whatever, and you group of people have to make a decision, and one person says, I don't want to make a decision. I, I think I'll just be neutral. You ever had that happen? And they act like they're being very magnanimous and wise. Are they? That person has made a decision, haven't they? They've made a decision not to make a decision, which is they're going to stay right where they are. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true with the person who says, I'm not going to make a decision for Jesus. I think I'll just kind of believe in all religions and everything. I'll just stay here. And Jesus would say, you're against me. You have chosen not to come with me, so you are therefore of the devil. You're either for me or you're against me. It's pretty strong words. So then what do we do to apply this? I want to look at a couple things today. The first thing I want to talk about is Beware of the devil. Peter says it well. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil is alive and well, and he finds you very tasty. And you had better be on guard. How do you guard yourself against a supernatural being like the devil? First of all, you remember that greater is he, Jesus Christ, who is in you than he is who is in the world. And Clifton, a few months back ago, talked about Jesus in the wilderness and he was being tempted by the devil. did a great job explaining that and helping us visualize that account. And Jesus is in a situation where he's being tempted. And it's really cool how he responds, specifically in Matthew. Uh, Matthew gives us the response in Matthew chapter, three, four, verse, Matthew chapter 4, verse 30. And Jesus says this, he says, away from me. That's all he says, away from me. And Satan goes away. Because Satan is scared to death of Jesus. And Jesus lives in you. And so you don't have to be fearful. You can just tell him, Get away. I've done that before. I've even said it verbally. Just leave me alone. Be gone. And I tell you that in Jesus' name because you can't mess with him. And you know it as well as I do, so get out of here. When you have those kind of feelings, like there's something oppressive, or you're being tempted to do something you know that you want to do and you shouldn't do, then that's demonic. And just say, be gone. You have that power. But the problem is, is you, know, you can't be doing that all day long. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, points out that when we're tempted by things, we need not to think on those things we're tempted by. We need to get our minds off to them and redirect it onto God. It doesn't work. Like, you have a problem with pornography. I'll tell you this. Don't open up your pornography in your computer and say, oh, God, please help me. Help me not to be tempted. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. It isn't going to work. All right? It's not going to work. You, you've got to block it out, and then you've got to get your mind on God. The other thing that Clifton pointed out that Jesus does 
in his temptations is he gets his mind on God. He, he, for his example for us, he starts quoting the Bible to Satan. And that just makes him so upset. And Satan leaves when you're quoting the Bible. So when you have bad feelings, you know, tell them to be gone, but then just get your mind off of things that are bothering you. Start reading your Bible. Start praying. Go, go to the scriptures and get that in your mind. Just every day, even if you just read one verse a day and think about it all day long. You know, instead of counting sleep, you're counting sheep, when you want to go to sleep, memorize scripture and prepare your mind and keep it clean and pure. So that's one thing we can do. And another thing, Paul gives us some really great advice on this in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 8, 18. Um, Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the comparison. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, because you can't do both. You cannot be directed by God when your mind is not there because it's being filled with liquor or with drugs. And so you need to be very careful of that particular position. Drugs and alcohol can control you, and they can distort the way you think. There's people in this room that can tell you about the dangers of those things. Um, I was talking... I've had this happen to me a couple times lately. It just keeps happening. I think with marijuana, you know, they've recently legalized it in Washington and in Colorado, and they'll probably legalize it here pretty soon. And there's been a lot of talk. People say, well, you know, it's, it's not addictive. Science has proven it's not addictive. But in the last couple weeks, I've had a family that told me about a loved one who can't break their addiction with marijuana. And I had a guy I talked to just last week, I think it was, and he told me, he said, I was addicted to pot. And I said to him, that's impossible because science tells us that you could not have been. I've been told this. And he looked at me and he said, and he looked me in the eyes, he kind of scared me for a minute, he said, they're a bunch of idiots. He said, I know. He said, I was spending 